Uh, good morning, sisters and brothers. Uh, today we're going to start a two-part series on the book of Jude. Uh, so could I get you to open to Jude, please? Uh, it's the second last book of the New Testament, Jude, and we're looking at the first 16 verses. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll speak to us uh, by your Spirit through your Word this morning. Uh, we pray that your Spirit would open our hearts to hear what you're saying to us and that we would respond rightly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was driving home the other day from one of my rare excursions from my house, listening to BFM radio. And the program was making the point that in the midst of the coronavirus threat, we mustn't forget other threats to our health. Now, we can be so focused on the coronavirus that we neglect to look after our health in other areas, and this could be medically dangerous. And friends, the same thing could be said about the health of our church. Uh, it is right that we should look at this whole coronavirus pandemic, and we should be looking out for each other in the midst of it, we should be helping each other as we battle the medical, emotional, and financial implications. Uh, but at the same time, we must not forget entirely about other threats, things that can harm God's church. Now, threats can come from outside, or they can come from within. And in the letter of Jude, which we're going to read over these next two weeks, the Holy Spirit shows us some threats from within, and how we and God's people should respond. Jude was the brother, or technically the half-brother, of Jesus. He is named in the Gospels as one of the four brothers of Jesus, together with James, Joseph, and Simon. Uh, but notice how Jude describes himself in verse 1. He could have said, I am the brother of Jesus. But instead he describes himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Right? He has taken to heart the things that Jesus said about his biological family, that his brothers and sisters and mother are those, those who do the will of God. And so even though he is Jesus' brother, his relationship with Jesus is that of a servant, just like you and me. And like all of us who know that Jesus is our Master and Lord, he is a servant of Jesus, brother of James. And then he describes the recipients of this letter. And again, he does so in a wonderful way. And he writes in verse 1, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. He's going to go on to say some pretty tough things in this letter, but he opens with a wonderful reminder of who we are. We are beloved by God the Father. Right? We saw that in our previous series, didn't we? The Father loves the Son from all eternity. Uh, he's the one, uh, the Son is the one who is perfectly deserving of God's love, and that love has overflowed to us. And we who are called to belong to Christ, we are loved by the Father in Him. And then James describes us as kept for Jesus Christ, or you can translate it as kept by Jesus Christ or kept in Jesus Christ. And I think the last one makes the most sense. We are called to be in Christ, we are loved in Christ, and God, by His grace, keeps us in Christ. And as Jews will say at the end of his letter, God is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And so at the beginning and the end of his letter, God, uh, Jude stresses God's sovereignty uh, in keeping his people. Now he stress our responsibility uh, in the rest of the letter, in the bulk of it, uh, but at the beginning end, he reminds us that if we are truly called, if we are truly loved by God, we are kept in Christ. Now, part of the way God keeps us in Christ, though, is the warnings and instructions that are here in this letter. So we've got to read on. But brothers and sisters, if we are called by God, loved by the Father, 
kept in Jesus Christ, then we are indeed recipients of God's grace. We were actually sinners deserving God's punishment, but we've been forgiven through the death of Jesus on our behalf. We have received mercy from God, and having received mercy, we are at peace with God. Christ paid the penalty of our sins, and we've been reconciled with Him. And knowing God's mercy and peace, we are assured of God's love. We are really beloved of the Father. And not only do we know God's mercy and peace and love, we now show that mercy and peace and love from God to others in the community. Even with people struggling with the issues that Jude is going to bring up in this letter. And we in turn should experience more and more of that mercy, peace and love as other people who have known the mercy, peace and love of God show it to us. And so Jude's prayer in verse 2 is that this indeed would happen. May mercy peace and love be multiplied to you. What a good prayer that is for us to pray for each other uh, and for the St. Mary's community. Now, Jude would have wanted to spend all his time expanding on this. Right? He, in verse 3 he says he was eager to write to them about our common salvation. He's eager to expound that mercy, grace, and love that come through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's eager to show how we share together in the gospel and its implications. But there's something that's, that's even more urgent at this point. Because the salvation that he and his recipients were partners in was under threat. And so his first job now is defensive. He says he finds it necessary to write, verse 3, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, to God's people, to the holy ones. Right? Notice, he's not just writing to the church leaders here. Right? He's writing to all these called ones together. And he begs them and he begs us to contend for, that is to struggle for, to fight for, the faith. And this faith, verse 3, was once and for all delivered to the saints. This is the teaching of Christ and his apostles, handed over to God's people to believe, to obey, to preserve, to pass on. And now it is under threat. On the one hand, he prays for mercy and peace and love to be multiplied to them, but when it comes to the faith, you have to fight. Now, interesting in this letter, he doesn't say how church leaders are meant to fight. That's a different story. You've got to get that elsewhere. Remember, he's addressing the whole church, ordinary people like us. And he will tell us how to respond in the part that we look at next week. Right, so make sure you come back. But the first thing we need to do is to identify the threat. And that's the big thing for this week. For he says in verse 4, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Right? The threat was actually in the church for a long time, but it wasn't noticed. There were people there who were not called beloved and kept. They were ungodly people, designated from con for condemnation among them in the church. They were not true believers, but they were there in the church. And they had previously been unnoticed, but their influence must now have been spreading and becoming a threat to the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. Now, unlike in so many New Testament letters, this threat doesn't seem primarily doctrinal. First and foremost, 
it is ethical. For he says in verse 4 that these certain people pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. In other words, they change grace from one thing into something else. Right? Grace is about God treating us in a way we don't deserve. It is about God accepting us despite our sins in His Son. It is about God forgiving us and not counting our sins against us because Jesus has died for us. And this grace of God not only forgives us, but transforms us. It leads us to reject sexual immorality and all forms of ungodliness as we wait for the day when Christ will return in glory. But these people pervert God's grace. God accepts you, so it doesn't matter what you do sexually. Grace means you can do whatever you like, and it's still okay. So go for it. God won't judge you, and neither will we. Friends, this is not the teaching of the apostles. This is not the teaching of Jesus. In the movies, James Bond has a license to kill. If your idea of grace means you have a license to be sexually immoral, you have a perverted idea of grace. You are in terrible, terrible danger. And so is anyone who is influenced by your views. For the next point that Jude makes is a solemn reminder that God really does judge and condemn sin. And he gives three examples to show this. The first example comes from God's Old Testament people who were rescued from Egypt. He says in verse 5, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Right? When Israel was rescued from Egypt, God rescued them from slavery. But that same generation that came out of Egypt did not go into the promised land. Because of their unbelief expressed in grumbling and rebellion, they died in the desert. And God brought a new generation into the land. God condemns sin, even among his own people. And then the second example comes from the spiritual realm. And we're told in verse 6, And the angels who did not stay within their own positions of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Right? Genesis 6 might reflect the other side of the story. We don't know for sure. Whatever happens, whatever happened, we know somehow that these angels abandoned the place and the role that God set for them, and they chose their own. Right? And what did God do? He condemned sin. He kept them under eternal chains, under gloomy darkness, unto the judgment of the last day. God condemns sin even among the spiritual beings. The third example comes from nations which are not God's people. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, we are told in verse 7, uh, indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Uh, sexual immorality there is talking about all kinds of sexual activity outside of marriage. And unnatural desire there, or literally unnatural flesh, is talking about homosexual activity. Jude says, verse 7 again, that Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. God condemns sin even in non-Christian society. 
And incidentally, if that is so, then part of loving our neighbor is playing our part in society to uphold morality as good citizens. So God really does condemn sin and punish it among his people, among the angels, among the nations. You cannot play play with him. And if you do, you're in terrible danger. Do not presume upon the grace of God and pervert it for sensuality. I wonder if we sometimes forget that God judges sin. I wonder if we sometimes think, it's okay, it doesn't matter, we're under grace anyway, why don't we just go for it? Even among God's people, are there pockets of believers who think it's acceptable for people to engage in sexual immorality? Just, just don't tell the pastors, because they're a bit more strict. But the rest of us, we're okay with it. Friends, it is not okay. You know how people say, friends don't let friends drink and drive, because you know it's dangerous and you care for your friend? Well, friends don't let friends engage in sexually immoral behavior without trying to save them from it. If you know that your brother or sister is heading for disaster, please help them. Please warn them. Please beg them. Please encourage them to repent. God really does condemn sin, and they are in terrible danger. Well, going back to Jude, these infiltrators were not just practicing sexual sin. There were other aspects of their behavior that was disturbing as well. And so Jude continues with more warnings. Rather than holding on to the faith that was passed once and for all to the saints, instead of listening to the apostles, they were, in, in verse 8, relying on their dreams. And God told them in a dream that these things are okay, it seems. And how do they know that it's really from God and not from their own minds or worse? If a dream or a thought or even a carefully reasoned argument contradicts the faith that was once, in law, once and for all delivered to the saints, you can be sure it is not of God. But relying on their dreams, they, in verse 8 again, defile the flesh, they commit sexual immorality, they reject authority, that is, they ignore the teaching of the apostles, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. Those were the three big things they were doing. Right? Now, in order to know about the first two, what about this blaspheming of the glorious ones? Well, the glorious ones here are simply uh, spiritual beings, which these people simply go in school. Right? Uh, Jude tells us that even the archangel Michael doesn't presume to insult the devil. Now, verse 9 says that when contending with the devil and disputing about the body of Moses, he doesn't presume to, to, to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you to him. But these people simply go and rebuke and condemn and insult these spiritual forces without knowing what they're actually doing. Now, verse 10 uh, says that they blaspheme all they do not understand and are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. They think they are so powerful because they but actually they are spiritually naive. It's going to get them into all kinds of trouble. Friends, let us make sure that we base what we do as God's people on the solid rock of God's revelation. 
We have God's word given to us through the prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New. Let's not base our ethics or our ministry on anything less secure than that. And let's be careful not to overstep into things that we're not taught about in God's word, lest we end up doing silly things that put us and others in spiritual danger. Then Jude, like an Old Testament prophet, pronounces woes on these people. He likens them in three ways to characters in the Old Testament. And you see he likes groups of threes, don't you? Woe to them, he says, for, number one, they have walked in the way of Cain. Cain, in his time, took evil to the next step of depravity from that of his parents. And these people are moving from one degree of sin to the next. They abandon themselves, verse 11 again, for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. When Balaam was paid to, to curse Israel, God stopped him from doing it. And, he, and so what did he do? Well, he advised the Moabites to lure them into sexual immorality instead. These people too were influencing God's people towards sexual immorality and somehow money is involved. And the result? Well, they have, verse 11 again, perished in Korah's rebellion. Uh, Korah, in the Old Testament, led a rebellion against Moses, God's appointed leader. And God brought judgment upon him and his co-conspirators when the earth opened up and swallowed them alive. And these people would face God's judgment for their rebellion against the word of God delivered through his apostles. And then in verses 12 to 13, Jude abandons his group of threes, uh, his groups of three, and just heaps up metaphors to describe these people. They are hidden reefs at your love feast, right? They're with you in the church, but they're a great danger to you, could cause your faith to, to, to sink. They don't really belong, but they're secure in their position for some reason. They can't be moved, and so they, they feast with you without fear. Perhaps they're untouchable because some of them are in leadership, but they're actually shepherds feeding themselves instead of looking after the sheep. They are waterless clouds swept by the winds. That is, they look promising, but they don't actually do anything good. They are fruitless trees in in late autumn, not productive. In fact, twice dead. Not just no fruit, but then also uprooted, so they won't ever have any fruit. Like the wild waves of the sea, not constrained, casting up the foam of their own shame, their, their indecent and immoral behavior. They are wandering stars, right? Like they're planets, not fixed in the sky, so they can't be used for navigation. They're useless as guides. They are the ones for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. They are on their way to hell. And friends, Jude warns us again, God will bring them to judgment. Verse 14 says that it was about these that... Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. Enoch's a character in the Old Testament who walked with God. And the prophecy that he's about to mention here is not in the Bible, but it's in a book called One Enoch, which was never part of Scripture for the Jews or the Christians. So Jude is not quoting it as Scripture. But we know from Scripture that there are people who prophesy whose prophecies are not in Scripture. And, and Jude tells us what Enoch prophesied about the ungodly of his day actually also applies to the people of his. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way 
and of all the harsh things the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Right? Christ will come and judge these ungodly people. And not only, as you see here, he judges them for their ungodly actions, but also their ungodly words. For in addition to all that he's told us about them before, Jude also tells us now that they are grumblers. I like the people of Israel in the desert, they're always complaining. They are malcontents, never satisfied, always blaming, always fault-finding according to their sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters with an exaggerated sense of self-importance. That They show favoritism, or literally they admire the face, that is, they flatter. Uh, they praise others insincerely for their own advantage. Well, brothers and sisters, these were what these people were like in Jude's day. But what about in ours? I don't imagine we will see ungodly people the exact, with this exact same combination of negative characteristics each time. Right? We'll get different permutations of ungodliness in every place, in every generation. And we will see different degrees of it as well. But we have enough here for us to take warning and to look out. Never be comfortable with ungodliness in our own lives and in the life of our church. Whether it be in the area of sexual ethics, in the rejection or relativization of the authority of God's apostolic word, in brave actions that look spiritual and powerful but actually come from ignorance, or in a culture of grumbling, boasting, and flattery. These are all characteristics to look out for, to avoid, and as we will see next week, to save others from. But we know from God's word that these things are serious, that God will indeed bring his judgment, and so we must be aware. Next week, we will see from Jude how to respond when we see these kinds of threats. It's a very positive passage, so, so let's look forward to that. But in the meantime, remember three things. First of all, the church is not immune from being infiltrated by people who are not true believers. Some of them even get into positions of leadership and influence. That was the church of Jude's day. That is the church of our day. It happens. We need to be aware. We need to be discerning. Even in the Anglican Communion, this has happened in a massive scale in the West, where whole dioceses and provinces, led by people who, like the ones mentioned here, have abandoned the Bible's teaching on sex and marriage and promote sexual immorality. Friends, we would be foolish to think that we are immune. The battle has and will come here as well. We must recognize the danger to ourselves and to each other. We must be vigilant and we must be prepared to contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Secondly, let us remember that God will judge. He has done so in the past. He will do so again. The kinds of things that we've seen today are very, very serious. God will discipline his people here and now, and there will be people who are members of the church who will face eternal condemnation in hell, because by their actions they deny the Lordship of Jesus. 
please, 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 do not pervert the grace of God into an excuse for sensuality. And so thirdly, we've seen the characteristics of these certain people of Jude's day. Let us all examine ourselves and see if we can discern any of these characteristics in us. We may not be all the way down that road. We might have just started heading in that direction. We we may not be showing all the characteristics, maybe just one or two. And even then, the features may not be full-blown like with these guys, but maybe it's just starting. But if these things are there, whether in big ways or in small, let us examine ourselves and repent. Let's cut the excuses and confess to God that this really is sin and that we really want to turn away from it. Let's bring these things to the cross, knowing that Jesus died for all our sins, even these things, and that when we reject sin, God really does forgive us because Jesus took our punishment in our place. So let us come to God in repentance, grateful for the grace that God has shown us in Christ. And if we do so, we can be sure that we are loved by the Father, kept in Christ Jesus, and a recipient of mercy, love, and peace. For we know the grace that does not condemn us, but really does change us. For the grace of God that brings us salvation, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have called us. Thank you that you love us and keep us in him. Please preserve us from falling into the trap of perverting your grace into sensuality and by doing so denying our Lord Jesus. Please help us instead to obey your word on on sexual ethics even as we live in a world that is turning further and further away from it. Please help us to base our lives and our ministries on the sure foundation of Scripture and not on dreams or speculations or anything else. Please preserve us from the harm that comes from barging into spiritual matters that you have not told us about. Please help us to speak words of truth and love. Please preserve us from ungodly speech. 
May we be a blessing to others and an encouragement to godliness, not a snare that leads others away. Father, where we need to repent of any of these things, please may your Holy Spirit convict us and produce a deep repentance in our hearts and in our community. Please bring us back to the cross to know your grace and forgiveness. And may that grace lead us and train us to walk in your ways as we wait for Christ the judge to return. And as we do that, we pray that your mercy, peace, and love be multiplied among us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.